The art market in 2022 was spectacular. Work sold at all levels, from historical masterpieces owned by some of the biggest names in collecting down to emerging talent. But the art market cannot rest on its laurels. Each year, after the Bellwether New York auctions in November, there's a long wait before the next year's market can begin. This year, that period coincided with a sea change in the global financial situation. As the Federal Reserve raised interest rates to cool inflation, most observers began to anticipate a recession with global implications. At the same time, China relaxed its COVID policies only to see the disease spread. And of course, the war in Ukraine dragged on. All of these negative expectations filled the news throughout the last three months. That also happens to have been the period when specialists assess the interests and appetites of collectors. It's also the time when consigners weigh their immediate needs against the broader economic climate. In other words, it wasn't an easy time. In this podcast, we're going to speak to some of the leading specialists at Christie's, Phillips, and Sotheby's to hear what works they have to offer. They range from major paintings by Kandinsky, Edvard Munch, René Magritte, and Picasso, to important works by Gerhard Richter, Willem de Kooning, Georg Baslitz, and Lucien Freud. There's a lot more to tell you about, so let's get started. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live Arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. Auction seasons are often described as a test of the art market, but this season in London has more than the usual jitters surrounding it. First, there's the issue of the long gap between the New York sales in November and these upcoming sales at the end of February. Here's Sotheby's Helena Newman to explain. I mean, first of all, the March sale is always an interesting benchmark for the market because there's quite a long gap after November. You don't get that at any other time in the market. And obviously, you know, November we have Paul Allen. It was an enormous, enormous season. And then everybody kind of was digesting that and regrouping. And so this is the first big marquee sale of the new year. So that, in any case, everyone is watching to see, you know, what the barometer is. The other auction houses live within the same weather system, as Cheyenne Westfall from Phillips acknowledges. There's always that that pause after, really after Miami, it's the cutoff point of the art market. And then, you know, there's that time, January, February, where, you know, everyone is sort of, What's going to happen next? And of course, you know, we are living in in uncertain times. There is, I mean, there's no denying of, of that. You know, we've also felt that there was a resilience and there was still a lot of attention and activity. So, you know, we're going into it with confidence. The main obstacle for the auction houses is where to get the kinds of lots that will inspire market confidence. Let's go back to Helena Newman. I mean, the challenge, as you know, Marion, with us is always the sourcing. And you know it's 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 getting it's getting the property that that always is the is the challenge. This year, we have some very exceptional material which comes because of all sorts of circumstances, particularly the restitutions. We will hear more about the restituted monk and Kandinsky shortly, but let's include Keith Gill from Christie's in the conversation. He explains their strategy for addressing a jittery market. 
we have a statistic I keep on coming back to 66% of the lots in the sale have never been up at auction before. We went out on a mission to be finding works that would be seen by our clients for the first time or last seen many years ago acquired by private collections generations ago and that's where we've really succeeded this season. Fresh material is only one part of the auction house mantra of success. That's quality work with an attractive estimate that is fresh to the market. Estimates will have to speak for themselves, but Sotheby's James Sevier tackles the first element. The sales that we have next week are you know, as strong as any sales that we've seen in March in terms of the quality and the value. So you know, we've got five works in excess of 10 million in our modern and contemporary sales. So we've got the Kandinsky, we've got the Munch, we've got a Picasso, the Richter and the Freud. So that, that's five sale highlights, each each one of which would usually be a sale leading highlight. I think we're seeing, you know, the, there's a flight to quality as there often is. And the appetite for great works of art remains undiminished. In fact, it's stronger than we've seen it before. Okay, enough of the scene setting. It's time to hear what's on offer. Sotheby's highlights include a large Lucian Freud painting from 1997 with a 15 million pound estimate and an irrevocable bid, a colorful Robert Delaunay painting from 1937 with a 7 million pound estimate, and a large Gerhard Richter abstract painting that previously set a record price, carrying a whisper number of 20 million pounds. The two restituted works that Helena Newman referred to earlier are a large panel from a frieze painted by Edvard Munch in 1906 and a Vasily Kandinsky painting from his important Murnau period that was owned by a Dutch museum since the middle of the 20th century. The Kandinsky has a whisper number of $45 million and carries an irrevocable bid. Twice before in the last decade, a Murnau picture has set a new record for Kandinsky. According to LiveArt's database, a 2012 sale for $23 million was the record until another Murnau painting made $26 million in 2017. Just six lots later in the same sale, a 1913 work made $41 million. If this work sells at or above the $45 million price point, it will become a new record for Kandinsky, which Newman sees as part of a broader trend. You know, there's definitely been an upswing in Kandinsky that we've seen coming through at auction and some very strong prices that we know about achieved privately, which suggests a real depth in this market for all periods. Nevertheless, the Murnau works have pride of place in Kandinsky's market. You know, the Murnau period has that wonderful combination of colour and line, which I think is so appealing. You almost see art history in the making. So if you are, you know, a serious collector of modern art, you know, you think of, you know, everything that's going to come in the 20th century, the first half and the second half, you know, with the post-war abstract expressionism, all its roots are here. And I think that's what's so exciting. You have this wonderful, enjoyable, explosive color and beautiful, beautiful, uh, resonant uh, singing painting. But it also is art historically, I think, hugely important. And I would be a top painting in any museum, actually, just in terms, you know, it would hold its own in, uh, in the Guggenheim in, in uh, the Neue Gallery, in the Pompidou. I mean, it is an absolute masterpiece of Kandinsky's work from 1910. Switching to the second restituted work at Sotheby's, Edvard Munch's nearly three feet by more than 12 feet long frieze is called Dance on the Beach. 
It was painted for a German avant-garde theater owner, but wound up in the collections of two important monk collectors. This work is estimated at 12 million pounds, which is $14.4 million. I asked Helena if that estimate wasn't quite conservative, considering another monk panel from a different frieze sold two years earlier for $22 million. Totally agree with you. I totally agree. So that is just only slightly earlier. It's 1904. This is 1906. It's very much uh, 1906 or seven. So it's only just a couple of years earlier. I think that benchmark price is incredibly relevant. I mean, obviously, at the very top end, you've got the stream as a benchmark. Then you've got uh, the figures on the bridge around $50 million or so. You've got the vampire around $36 million or so. And then I think the fourth highest is the summer day embrace on the breach, which it, the pounds was 16 million pounds. So that's like 22, $23 million. And it's quite a recent comparable because uh, it was uh, in 2021. So that definitely is a benchmark. We're estimating this at in pounds, 12 to 20 million pounds, which is 15 to $25 million. So we're absolutely encapsulating that benchmark within our estimate. But the estimate doesn't really account for the sheer quality of the work. It's super impressive. It has this extraordinary history. And I think most importantly, it's absolutely on theme with Monk's preoccupations. I mean, all there, all his world is there in this freeze, you know, love, death, youth, age, torment. And, you know, you've got these two figures on either side, the, the blonde, the woman in white and the woman in black. And the question is, are they the same figure in youth and old age or are they different figures? And then in the middle, you have the lovers, the scene of the lovers twirling around in the dance. You know, it's an absolutely, if you, were, if you were to buy one work of Monk that you could acquire from private hands, this, this has got it, you know, the whole of his world is there. Leaving the whole of Monk's world behind, let's turn to the apple of Picasso's eye, his daughter Maya. Sotheby's is offering a Picasso painting of his daughter Maya done in 1938. It was sold from fashion designer Johnny Versace's estate in 1999 for $6 million dollars. Recently, the painting was featured in a show at the Musée Picasso focused on Maya. Paintings from this period have sold for as much as $100 million. This one is estimated at 12 million pounds, or less than three times what it sold for almost 25 years ago. This is sitting more in the sort of 20, 20, aspirational $20 million category. I would say I'm impressed below, but I think it's a picture that could absolutely be making that kind of level. It's got the colour the scale. It's Maya, the child, the daughter of Marie-Thérèse, the famous golden muse, the famous uh, subject of his great paintings from the 30s. Of course, it's the case with his portraits of his children, and particularly of Maya. You know how Picasso embodies the more adult features into the child? So actually, when you look at the face, it's not really a child at all. I mean, it looks much more like Marie-Thérèse, doesn't it? And um, so that brings a kind of depth and a gravitas to the painting. So he's mixing the infantile and the mature and the, as ever, the double face. And, and you know, it's got many, many elements of complexity amongst what initially seems just a, a, a very joyful, simple image of a child with a toy boat. We're not done with Sotheby's yet, but let's get a word in with Cheyenne Westfall at Phillips, who has two important works from a major French collector who doesn't often get the spotlight. 
It's worth going into some detail about Marcel Briant as a collector because he has said previously that he sells work intentionally to introduce different artists to the auctions at different times. I suppose that's one way to say he's a market timer and we might want to pay attention to his signals. Someone who is absolutely fascinated by art, you know, as a child he was drawing and is very intuitive. And um, what makes him special as a collector is that he was able to really see what is young and new before that trend or that artist had really settled in. And he was doing this long before others were doing it. You might sort of say, okay, maybe Charles Saatchi around that time, but, but not many. And that allowed him to really build a formidable collection. And then obviously, through the sales of various works, allowed him to continue buying as well. So he is a a story of someone who's managed to become a really important collector um, with very little means in that sense, um, starting off and and building it over time and haven't gotten it right. He's got a very strong eye, a very good eye. You know, when he sells at auction, he um, he always designates. So, you know, it's him selling. So it's, um, it's in that sense, a very transparent process. And um, it's a sign of letting something out and also be being proud of what he has collected and is now is now sending back into the world. So not much is known about Briant's collection, but the two works he is selling were painted only a year apart in the 1980s. Gerhard Richter's Mathis is estimated at 10 million pounds, and Willem de Kooning's untitled work is offered at 7 million pounds. His collection is wide-ranging. One area where he did focus was American and German art, so the representation of Richter and de Kooning is, is something that, you know, you, you see in his collection. And of course, if you look back at past sales, you know, here at Philips, we had the opportunity to present his incredible Kippenberger, Death on the Raft of the Medusa, which um, sold for $11 million in 2018, and a very strong Basel, it's from 1982, after the Monk series, which we sold for $6.5 million. In the case of the two works that we're offering now, they're in a way a little bit of a standout because these were already at the time major purchases, you know, to acquire the Richter in 2000 and six and the de Kooning in 2003 and you know back then those were not cheap purchases they were already quite significant now of course you can say these have really you know increased in value over the past 15-20 years um, but you know those were works where he really felt an incredible connection to the work of art you know he often talks about how he saw the Richter for the first time and he just felt like really a punch from the strength of that painting and you know the, the you know the physical power of Richter at that time and his abstraction and it's before he he really starts using the squeegee as the main tool you know the trace of the squeegee but it is still a very gestural work and a very powerful work and in contrast for him the de Kooning was so incredibly poetic and and lyrical, you know, an artist towards the end of his life who is, um, you know, he's even talked about sort of it being almost the last breath that you can feel. And and that's something that he, he was very, very much drawn to. So those were the primary reason for acquiring these works of art. I asked Cheyenne why there seems to be a resurgence in the auction market for Richter abstract paintings. Each of the three auction houses has a different example from different periods within the abstract series, in different sizes, and at different price points. 
<laughs> no, I think the, the beauty about Richter is that his oeuvre is known and is, you know, he's, he's been meticulous about recording it all the way across. And, you know, we've seen incredibly important exhibitions all over, you know, and I think we'll, we will be seeing an important one in Berlin um, in this year, um, 100 works by Gerhard Richter. So, so that will continue. And then what we're seeing is that new people are still coming to this market. You know, we opened Richter up to Asia, which was success, um, so successful for us only, only last season. But it's not just Asian collectors. You know, you, you're finding younger American collectors recently in New York, you know, who wanted to add Richter to their collection, who feel, you know, excited, but also reassured by him. And there is something about his consistency as an artist, you know, although he has got such a range from the photorealism to the gestural abstraction to the squeegee work, that sort of marks him out. And I think that gives him a standing, which is which is quite important in, in, in the market view as well, not just in art history. I also asked James Sevier about Sotheby's very large abstract painting from 1986 that they are offering with a whisper number of 20 million pounds. This work comes in two canvases that measure more than eight feet by 13 feet when put together. You know, the the large Richter abstract that we're selling, it's one of only five works by Richter painted with a squeegee on this scale left in private hands. And I, and I think that regardless of whatever, you know, macro, social, economic, political conditions are out there, the, the rarity of this opportunity and the quality of the painting and also the attractiveness of the, ele- of the estimate relative to other major Richters that have come up for sale at auction and what they've fetched, I think those, the combination of those factors make this an opportunity not to be missed. Where the market for large Richter abstracts lies is a real question. Those works have been very important to the overall health of the contemporary art market. At times, they made up a huge portion of the auction volume for contemporary art. But last May, Christie's resold a bellwether work, once owned by Eric Clapton, for approximately the same price it sold for a decade earlier. That raised questions about whether Richter's top prices could move upward. Sotheby's painting is much larger than the Clapton work, though from an earlier period. It was sold at auction in 2007 for just under $10 million. It comes to Sotheby's with a guarantee, which tells us the auction house has some confidence there's a buyer at 20 million pounds, possibly much higher. Ours was last up at auction in 2007, and it made the record for an abstract painting then. So obviously there has been a huge change in Richter's market since. And actually, I, I remember when I first joined Sotheby's in 2004, what everyone wanted back then by Gerhard Richter was a figurative painting. So it was all about the photo paintings from the 60s. Since then, we have seen this dramatic shift away from the figurative paintings back to the abstract paintings. There's more to the art market than contemporary art. No single movement in art history has become more relevant today than surrealism. Many young artists look to the surrealists for inspiration. This isn't the first time that's happened. Christie's surrealism expert, Olivier Camus, explains how the surrealists influenced the first generation of abstract expressionists in the 1940s, before they were famous. Most of them moved to New York during the war and influenced the young abstract expressionists. So, you know, early Rothko is Max Ernst. Uh, early Pollock is Masson. Early, you know, Gorky is Masson Miro. Yes, of course they took in there. And then Miro, in the 60s, took back from them by doing giant canvases. I explained to Olivier that live art's data 
showed almost $225 million in auction sales in 2022 for ex-surrealist René Magritte's work, a major record for the artist. And I'm not surprised because, you know, if you look at him, Magritte is a religious, a cultural. He's not linked to any particular history in the world. He's not like Delvaux looking at Pompeii in Rome and Greece. He's a pure conceptual, hard-thinking, anti-bourgeois, actually, revolutionary artist uh, in the 20s and 30s really early on. And so, in a way, Marguerite's puns and poems and um, revolutionary way of showing showing you things you think you know, but actually they're different, um, works for everybody around the world. I'm not surprised he's he's, he's risen and risen and risen. Uh, It came with the art market, but people realized everywhere around the world, people understand Marguerite. Surrealism is much more than Marguerite, though. Camus points out that his surrealism sale has more than 17 different artists, the most in the 23 years he's been doing this. One reason is that Camus has a collection of 25 works this season from a San Francisco tech couple who spent more than two decades working with advisor Wendy Norris, building a diverse collection of surrealist artists, which now fits with a much more diverse approach to collecting and to understanding surrealism. So we have not just a much more international surrealist set, which kind of funnily matches the zeitgeist of today's International Service Exhibition, Beyond Borders, at the Metropolitan, and then at the Tate London last year, which really exploded the usual boundaries, let's say, of either American or New York or Eurocentric, mostly, surrealism. But also, gender-wise, uh, there's more women artists in that cell than we've ever had before. So it's, in that way, it's a great collection. Um, I don't know if they knew what they were doing then. They knew it was going to be the future zeitgeist, but that's what they liked then. And now... It's what people uh, want to hear about. So it's great. It's it's really exciting. It's riding a different kind of service horse in a way. And in that sale, you've got the in that collection, you've got the Remedios Varro, which is a top work, super rare portrait of Dr. Chavez. You've got Leonor Carrington, portrait of young Felix, actor, son of beautiful actress Maria Felix. You've got the Pisa Tower by Magritte which is an amazing image. And Magritte is powerful when he's pure and simple, not too convoluted. And that's the logo of the sale, actually. He's a tower reclining on a feather. And there's the great Dominguez, La Machine à Coudre Electrosexuelle, after a Comte de l'Autremont, uh, a novel where, you know, the Suris and Dada had picked up this term, the chance encounter on a, on a dissecting table of an umbrella and a sewing machine. The tech couple's works are only part of the sale. There's also a Magritte Skybird, which has a four million pound estimate and a financial guarantee. And then in the non-collection part, you've got this Magritte Bird, which is the cover of the sale catalog uh, and is sheer beauty. I mean, I've seen quite a few cutout birds by Magritte, not that many, it's actually four or five, proper cutout on the Skybird, you know. Uh, this one is certainly the biggest, the most beautiful, the best painted and the purest. Again, Magritte, when he's pure like that, a day sky cuts out birds, dove flying over a night sky with uh, stars and the sea very well painted below with the waves reflecting the moon, which is hidden by the bird. It just hits your mind, your eye, and, and, it, and you know, it hits your dreams in a fantastic, poetic way. Uh, and there are other things, like the only remaining Duchamp objet trouvé in private hands of the 11 ones. Uh, and there's a rare, super rare Masson sand painting. Masson was in 1926 on a canvas put on the floor, dripping glue, and then dripping different colors of sand, harnessing chance, but it makes you think of Pollock 20 years later. Well, he, this dude was doing it in 1926. Super rare.
Keith Gill focuses on the rest of the modern works in Christie's Sale, an early Van Gogh portrait, a chandelier by Alberto Giacometti, and Picasso's portrait of Jacqueline Roque that has a 15 million pound estimate and a third party guarantee. It's a 56 Jacqueline. It's it's a meter 95 high. So it's one of the largest formats Picasso's oils you can get. Incredibly strong, vibrant sort of reds and greens. Uh, when you see it on the wall, it is incredibly striking. Also, from a technique point of view, as you know, Picasso was constantly experimenting with technique in various different media. What's unusual about this is you have the sort of the very sort of strong, vibrant oil, but then you also have some sort of work with the palette knife through her face and through her torso, which just adds a little bit more depth than you would ordinarily have in one of these late portraits. Alberto Giacometti is best known for his distinctive sculptures, but his brother Diego made a career as a celebrated decorative artist. Over the last decade, there's been an explosion in demand for Diego's furniture, but the two brothers were quite close. Christie's has an uncommon chandelier by Alberto that was commissioned in the 1940s. It's a fantastic scale, the way that the mechanism of it actually works. You can see that Alberto was probably having a few conversations with Diego about how to make it work from a practical point of view. It is, a, it is a real work of art from an engineering point of view. And then when you suspend it from the ceiling and light it, it looks amazing. Buyers may want something more recognizable as a Giacometti. And Christie's has a small figure of a woman cast in the early 1960s, estimated at 1.5 million pounds, but also carrying a third-party guarantee. We have a lovely standing figure by, by Giacometti, a beautiful lifetime bronze. It's 40 centimeters high. It's um, but still the patina is fantastic. It's coming from a private Italian collection who had it as a gift from the artist in the 60s. It's not a big thing, but it's a beautiful thing. It's an incredibly tactile thing. There's room for it in every collector's house. And again, you know, the last one of those we had made just over $4. We've got it incredibly attractively estimated at one and a half pounds. So to your point, it, it is deliberately attractively estimated and it should be appealing to a, a broad audience today. Of course, when Keith says $4 there, he means $4 million in dollars. Ignore the auction house shorthand. Gil and I discussed that the sale was looking to surface overlooked and underpriced works by German expressionists. We have a, a very nice Berlin period Kirchner nude, 1914, great scale, incredible sort of vibrant colors um, coming from the Levy collection. And that's priced at the equivalent of, of $3. If you think about, as you say, sort of more you know, later in the 20th century into the 21st century German art, um, it, it's incredibly good value for money to be buying a, a portrait of that importance for $3. And it's incredibly good value for money, even if, if it's $5. Um, also from that same collection, we have arguably probably more important in terms of the artist's body of work, a 1922 Otto Dix work on paper. That was last up at auction in 1992. It made the auction record for work on paper by the artist when it was up for auction then. Um, it's been in a number of very important exhibitions, for example, at the Neue Galleries sort of 20 odd years ago. It's an incredibly important thing. It's this it's a very classic sort of dicks figure of these sort of two um, masochist sort of prostitutes with this machinery in the background, the detail of sort of the whip of one of the women and her holster. And there's this incredible sort of bearskin rug on the floor in front of this sort of incredibly sort of excruciating looking machine. Um, it's absolutely what you want from dicks of the early 20s. Um, and you would think something of that importance should be $2 million. It's less than a $1 million. A million pounds is also the estimate 
for an 1885 portrait that Vincent van Gogh painted and is now on offer. There is a real following for early portraits by van Gogh. Um, and the one we have in the sale has been in the same family collection since 1903. So 120 years in the same private collection. It's being sold by the great-grandchildren of the individual who bought it in 1903. It's rare because it's an identifiable sitter, Gordina de Groot, who um, sat for the artist many times. She is one of the figures in the Potato Eaters, so one of his most iconic early works. It was last exhibited over 70 years ago, beautifully estimated, an incredibly striking work of the very best quality by one of the most recognisable artists of, the, of our period. So it is, it's an emblematic work. It's not the highest value, but it's, it's the real sort of becoming almost an obsession of the, of the sale team. Shifting back to contemporary art, Tessa Lord talked to me about Christie's sale of two works by Lucian Freud and two by Georg Baselitz, among the most consequential European artists of the late 20th and early 21st century. Let's start with the Baselitz works. Both Baselitzes come from the Hess collection. There's a 1975 painting of the artist's wife, Elke. The portrait is in Baselitz's now famous upside-down format. The other work is a large wooden sculpture of a woman, estimated at four million pounds. As of last year, a woman of Dresden sculpture from another important Baselitz collector achieved the record price for the artist at $11 million. The sale of the Women in Dresden series in May last year really was quite a transformative moment. The sculpture that we have, Frau Parganismus, is over two meters 50 in height, you know, literally the female form excavated from this colossal singular piece of wood. And you get to see the in the same way that there is a deep physicality and energy to the 75 portrait of Elka, the way that he's daubed the brush, occasional use of his fingers, giving real sort of dynamism. You then bring that to the chainsaw, the axe, you know, the same sort of one better than the same paintbrush almost, but on a much more physical scale of Frau Parganismus. So I was thinking about um, how you are able to see across quite different examples visually how there is like continual narratives for an artist. So for Basilitz, it's the depiction of the female form. Elke, um, as his wife, uh, was someone that, as a subject matter, he continually returned to. But Basilet spoke quite freely about how he tried to rid his paintings of Elke. But Elke had this sort of all-consuming, overarching presence. And maybe, maybe it's the power of a wife or something. That's something um, about relationships there. And, you know, how that then went to inform his depictions of women. And you have this incredible tower of strength in Frau Parganismus that is hard not to to sort of draw back to the hero paintings, including like his first hero painting, um, where you've got that sort of similar single arm figure. So for me, that's quite interesting. Lucian Freud's large interior set a new record price for the artist at $86 million in the Paul Allen sale last November. That has brought out an interesting small early work at a much lower price point. Christie says Salonian Beachscape from 1945 to 46, which is estimated at 3.5 million pounds, and a later 2002 work, Garden from the Window, estimated at 2.5 million pounds. In the same way as we're discussing Baslitz with two different examples across several decades, um, demonstrating a continual artistic thread, 
um, for an artist. I think this, that's certainly true of Sololian Beachscape and then Garden from the Window. So Sololian Beachscape for Freud, um, painting 45, 46, a very early work, which in and of itself is extremely rare in the market. I think, and I can double check this, I think there are only over the last 10 years about seven or eight works from that period that have come through. It's quite rare that you see sort of fully realized paintings from this period, um, which really is that's your sort of germinating seed for Freud's fascination with the natural world. It's, you know, it's the level of exacting observation that he brings to this natural landscape. You know, in the Art of Silly, he's left London with the fellow artist John Craxton. He's doing this sort of beginning of a European tour, comes through Cornwall, goes on to these Isles of Silly, which I don't know if you know much about the Isles of Silly, but they're this extraordinary, and people barely believe they're in the UK, um, this extraordinary microclimate off the coast of Cornwall that really has like a tropical field. And you can imagine for Freud as an artist, like the sensory awakening of all of that. And you've got that incredible crisp linear detail that you get in Freud's early work. You then move forward you know, to 2002. This is Freud well in London. He's got his studio of Kensington Church Street, which, you know, as a studio, we've all come to know quite well. It's often the backdrop for many of his portraits. But it has these monumental uh, windows, first floor windows. And beyond the windows is this incredible garden, which he deliberately let run wild. You know, he wanted the natural world to kind of come into that. And so you see that even in the later stages, you see him coming to it 60 years later, continuing to look at the natural world as a source of inspiration. The final piece of the puzzle is artists working today. There's strong demand for a variety of so-called ultra-contemporary artists, but all three houses have works by Cecily Brown, Claire Tabaret, and Caroline Walker. Cecily Brown has a retrospective opening at the Met in New York in April, so this is the last selling opportunity before that show opens. All three artists are part of a trend where collectors are seeking the work of female artists. That seems like a subject we should turn to Cheyenne Westfall to explain. We've seen this for, um, for quite a time now, that there is a really strong interest in female painters. And, you know, we've seen the number of female artists included in our sales, you know, really go up dramatically. And when you're looking at the younger generation, there is a significant amount of, of female artists who are now actually dominating the market. So it's, it's a very, very interesting um, time that we're living in. And of course, um, that also sparks interest within collectors who are quite specifically looking for these artists and and the subject matter that they're dealing with because you know it is the female lens that particularly these three are bringing to um to their art you know whether it's with Cecily Brown who in the work that we are offering you know very freely depicts um sensuality sexuality eroticism you know marked with her incredibly distinctive brushwork you know that brings her material ability to paint together with the subject matter that she's exploring on that sort of verge between abstraction and figuration or be it Caroline Walker, who I find a very, very interesting artist who very early on decided to really focus on the female women as the subject matter. You know, that is her sort of prime starting point and often placing in structures or architectures or settings that are really ambiguous and exploring the relationship in case of the work that we're offering is you know sort of really beautiful elegant dream house architecture with 
a narrative that is ambiguous, really interesting. You don't know what's going on. You feel very much a bit like a voyeur, but, but you're also trying to understand what is the role of the woman. And, you know, she opens it up for questioning, but she doesn't really offer you the answer. So I, I find her a very interesting and intriguing artist. And Claire Tabouret, who is, you know, one of the most promising French artists living in Los Angeles with, you know, a strong roster of solo exhibitions, be it in Venice or at the Youth Museum in Shanghai, is again someone who's exploring a very particular subject matter, you know, often related to children in costumes and again giving you an image of something, but not a full explanation. There are so many great artists with work in these sales. It's a shame that we don't have time to preview them all. Before we go, let's listen to James Sevier talk about two artists who are very much in demand. The first is Michael Armitage. Yeah, so he, he's grown up between London and Nairobi, and I think his paintings contain this combination of cultures, really, between Western art history and African culture that he's lived and experienced over there. I mean, one of the most obvious things about his paintings is the material on which they're painted. And it's this very unique, distinctive Lubugo bark cloth that the artist gets made up and then he draws directly onto that. So the surface of these paintings is truly unique. It's almost like a kind of patchwork of skin when, when you see it. Uh, and there's all sorts of little holes as well where the, you know, the organic material hasn't quite formed a complete surface across the canvas. So the Michael Armitage is the first work that we're offering in, in the evening sale at Sotheby's. Um, there is huge demand for him on the primary market. There was obviously a show in Basel last year. And I think most of the paintings that are being sold by White Cube exclusively are going to museums, is our understanding. There's been enormous demand for his work since we sold Michael Armitage. That I think the only other major painting by the artist to come up was in New York several years ago, which we offered in a day sale. And since then, we're aware of prices in the three to four million dollar range on the private market. So there's huge excitement around this painting. This is, in my opinion, the best Michael Armitage, or certainly the better of the two paintings to have come up so far. Um, but it's a really complete, fully worked painting and is very typical in terms of what one might expect and what collectors are really drawn to in the artist's work. The final artist to discuss is Mohammed Sami. His work is the opening lot of Sotheby's The Now Sale. I think it's the first time that a painting by him has come up for sale on the secondary market. He's got this great institutional show that's getting you know rave reviews here in London at the Camden Arts Centre. And he was also prominently featured in the Hayward Gallery show, Mixing It Up, um, where actually one of the sister paintings to the work we're offering was shown. And he was one of the one of the kind of breakout stars of that exhibition, which was really a cross-section of contemporary figurative painting today. There's very little available on the secondary market. I think, you know, collectors who are lucky enough to get access from Stuart Shave here or Luring Augustine in New York, um, you know, they're very highly prized paintings. And, you know, this, this was the only painting that we were 
offered or in discussion for for this auction and we're particularly excited to be handling it and to be you know introducing this great work by the artist to the secondary market and hopefully finding a great home for it because these these paintings are Im- almost impossible to get on the primary market sami is one of those contemporary artists we mentioned earlier whose work harks back to surrealism so i think it's worth closing with sevier's thoughts on why but my personal take is that the imagery that we find in surrealism is pretty timeless um and actually in many ways is even more relevant today than it was because of the piecemeal nature of a lot of the images you know the fact that we live in this image saturated environment this culture where you're kind of fleeting from one screen to the next the speed of visual information that we're surrounded with i think strikes a real chord with surrealism and these often kind of jarring juxtapositions and contradictions that you find in surrealism i think are being picked up by a whole generation of contemporary artists like mohammed sami yeah it's a kind of alternate reality isn't it in the same way the metaverse is yeah these these images exist in a world where the laws of nature and science don't apply well, that's it for this preview of the London sales. The auctions begin with Christie's on February 28th, Sotheby's on March 1st, and Phillips on March 2nd. Follow along on the LiveArt app or wait for our after action report on March 3rd. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.